Nick Helm and Nathaniel Metcalf's fan club on FUBAR Radio. Oh, and we're off, and we're off, and we're off. We are, we're back. We're off? <laughs> yes, we are. Take three. Is this take three? Take two. Take three. Eh, one and a half. Two and a half. Yeah. Right. My name, my name is Nick Helm. <laughs> this is... Nathaniel Metcalf. And you're listening to... Fan Club. Yeah. Fan Club. First rule of Fan Club, tell your friends about Fan Club. Oh, your friends. Second rule of Fan Club. Second rule. Second rule. Yeah. Please, for the love of God, tell <laughs> your friends. <laughs> yeah. We've had yeah. some technical issues today. But I think we've, uh, uh, we've beaten them. Yeah, well, maybe... Maybe we have. We've had, some, yeah, there's been some gremlins in um, fan club HQ, FFHQ, uh, FCHQ. FC. I, I can't say, I don't know, fan club, fan flub. It's not normally like this, guys. It's normally much worse. Anyway, so, <laughs> right, here we are. Well, you know, I always remember the time that John Robbins came on and <laughs> was horrified by how we've been living. <laughs> like it he obviously it does. Well, he works for professional, uh, he looks for big uh, broadcasters and he probably has things he's probably not allowed to waffle on and no, eat, no. eat stuff. Oh, there. It was like, <laughs> it was like uh, he picked up a rock and he'd seen uh, two woodlouse wearing headphones with microphones. Sat <laughs> 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 uh, around a radio desk. But anyway, if you're listening, John, he's not. Have a great day. <laughs> so, <laughs> um, uh, right, okay, so, um, uh, how, what do we normally do? How do we normally start? What do we know, do? It's not, I think it is normally like this. I think we're doing fine. I think this is a well, classic you know episode. I tell you what's thrown me is that I was over-efficient and I got all of, like, the admin done right first thing out of the way yeah. right then. And now it's just like, if you do have any fan mail, guys, uh, uh, Google the uh, our names and you might be able to find some sort of email address. I think yeah, it's fanclub at foobarradio.com.com, yeah. Fanclub at foobarradio.com. This is brilliant stuff. This is fanclub at foobarradio.com. Um, we've, got a, we've got a pretty pretty amazing guest coming up later. Never said this before. I feel really weird. I'll tell you what it was. Just, we, we, I mean, uh, we're, we're as punctual as fucking ever um, on, uh, on, on Foobar on a Friday when we're broadcasting, whenever you listen to your podcast. But today uh, I did a radio... I did an interview for BBC Radio Scotland, um, and uh, and it was very stressful. And Uber, you know, the whole setup—you got to do a line check, and you got to, uh, you know, um, phone them up like ten minutes before you go on, and uh, then you're in, like in a waiting room, and then they go, "Now you're live on air. Don't swear, Nick." And uh, they they say it to everyone, but I only know from my own personal experience today. It was just like, please, we're live and it's the middle of the day, don't swear. Um, and I was just like thinking, you know, they've told me not to swear. And they said, you know, because it's the middle of the day, so don't swear. But it's kind of like, I've never heard anyone say cunt on BBC radio. Mm. Um, so it's just kind of like, I don't think it's ever acceptable. doesn't matter how early in the day it is. Uh, but I had to promote my show Phoenix from the Frames, which is going to be out 
doing a live stream of it tomorrow or oh, Saturday? Saturday. No, that's, that's, that's today, yeah. Saturday, Saturday. Tomorrow. 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 If, you're listen, if you're listening on Friday and if you're listening as a podcast, it's in the past now. It's gone. You had your chance and, and you missed it. Uh, you can pro- probably buy it somewhere online. You can buy it online. Um, but uh, so I'm doing this thing and I'm promoting it to all these people and they keep like saying, well, there's no swearing. But I do say uh, the C word, cunt. Hmm. Uh, I, I think it's over two hundred times. Like what, the point his... of the sh- in, in, in the thing in the in the show, I think it's um, I think it, I, I think I, I think my thought of it is back in two thousand nineteen, two thousand eighteen. But I think the thought the thought process was if I say it enough times, people will become so desensitised to it. That they won't notice. And I think when you're listening to something live, when you're actually in the room and it's live, then you kind of, like, go with the flow a little bit, right? Yeah, that shocked me. I've seen the show. Is it the recording from Leicester Square? Is it that one? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So, yeah, I've seen that, and I would, I'm surprised it had so many C-bombs uh, in it. it. I don't, and, and, it's, and it's like, it's not, you know, it's as scripted as it, as, as it would be in my case. So I'm not, like, randomly throwing them in. Hmm. So it, it, by the time it got to Leicester Square, it was the show that I was touring. But um, but it feels a bit weird promoting it on kind of like family-friendly TV. Like I did Sunday brunch, and you have to say, I mean, most of your audiences, if you switch this on with your kids in the living... Do you know what I mean? Now I'm in... It's not a case of coming to see me at Leicester Square Theatre and going yeah. with the flow. It's the fact that... You're now in someone's living room saying it 200 times. And the context is slightly different. So I am sort of a bit... No, I'm not nervous, but it, but it's like, oh, bloody hell. I mean, even for me, it's kind of like, God, I do swear a lot. Is that an automatic 18 certificate? If you say it once, it might be even. I think it's X-rated. I think it's just like you can't say it that many times. I think it's unclassifiable. <laughs> um, but... Um, but the, but I was talking to Chris Evans from not that one, not that one, Go Faster Stripe. I was talking to Chris Evans from Go Faster Stripe, and um, he was saying that the first time he came to see me, and I only found this out um, uh, yesterday when I was talking to him yesterday, and he said the first time he came to see me, he hated me, and he nearly walked out uh, uh, during the first like couple of minutes, five minutes. He said he's so brash, and he's so. Uh, like uh, angry, um, and then he said that um, that throughout the twenty minutes or however long I was on stage, I can't remember what gig it was, that I like turned. He said the audience around, which implies that everyone hated me, but <laughs> him. But I think the implication is I turned him around, and he said that you can't because the idea is that you come at, that you're you're vulnerable. You're showing this soft underside. Yeah, I'm, I'm explaining to you, Nathaniel, uh, an, an expert in what I do. Uh, I feel like I'm preaching to the choir, but I'm telling you the magic behind what I do on stage. <laughs> but I'd never thought about this before, but he said that in order to show like the soft underside and the vulnerability, you've got to come out and do all of that stuff at the beginning, and you sort of just have to hope that people are going to stick with it long enough for... That's to emerge. And I did like this masterclass last week where somebody said, I saw you once and these um, uh, these women, could have been men, but these women on the front row got up and left after the first seven minutes of, you know, you're feeling, you know, to show that I'm 
streaming on Saturday, Phoenix from the Flames, he said, you know, I came out, did seven minutes, including a song, and some women got up and they just left on the front row. And you go, yeah, that is a shame, because I'm sure that if they'd have stuck with it, you know, that it would have been like a roller coaster, you know? Yeah, I, like... I find it weird when people leave, because you haven't done anything yet that would have offended them, unless they're just incredibly offended by swearing, maybe, I don't know. It's like, like either you've come in completely unprepared for what you're yeah. going to spend an hour doing, or, and, and that might happen, you've taken a punt on something, you know, uh, it's uh, it's 4.17 and you're in the Queen Dome and, uh, and there's, a show fa- there's, a sh- there's a show farting, there's a show starting in three minutes, and uh, you think, yeah, all right, I'll just give that a go. Or you're in there and I come out and I sing and I'm wearing a cape and uh, uh, I do like all of these one-liners and then like seven minutes into the show, they look at each other and they go, this isn't the seagull. And then, <laughs> then they have to get up and leave. Do you know what I mean? It's like, it's like, just give it a go. Um, yeah. And it's also sort of like, uh, yeah, anyway, so I'm sort of like, I was thinking about that. Anyway, the point is, I went on a very professional, <laughs> no, we're professional. Well, mm. me and you, not so much, but, you know, uh, I'm just not saying anything bad about Natalie, but, um, or food bar, I don't need to. And uh, so all I'm saying is that I went on BBC and it was all very stressful. And now it's had like a knock on effect where I've come on this show uh, to host my own show, our own show. And mm-hmm. uh, the, the knock on effect is that I started off very professional and, um, and, and, and now I'm lost at sea. I'm all lost. But no, at I sea. think if anything, you've probably come on too professional and now this show doesn't it has a more of a shambolic nature so you've come on like a professional broadcaster and uh and you've got a you've got to match that vibe thanks Nat. and uh, now i know you didn't mean it that way but um what you just said means more to me than you'll ever know <laughs> um and can i also just point out that um what happened over the last five minutes that my friend is how you do a plug yeah yes they, they, I didn't even, I did, I did, it was like magic. Did you see it? I talked for five minutes about my streaming show, right? Yeah. Five minutes, right? But I made it seamless. I wove yeah. it into the fabric of just what that, I was talking In hindsight, we should have done it last week, so people definitely would have had time to hear it, though, if they listened to the podcast. Oh, there's always, there's always something with you, isn't there? <laughs> Uh, um, uh, can you uh, what film was that quote from paraphrased from I don't know Ah, ah. it was from uh, Joe versus the Volcano starring Tom Hanks Meg Ryan Ryan. I don't Um, think I've seen that film in 20 years I've seen it twice in I think I saw it last year and I saw it this year I think I almost watch it every year and um and it just always feels like, oh, do you know what I haven't seen in a while? Joe vs. the Volcano. It's a weird film to have as one of your favourite films of all time, I think. Because it's, I think it was like largely ignored at the time. It was one of them kind of like, Tom Hanks is in Turner and Hooch at the cinema. And in the video shop is Joe vs. the Volcano. It's sort of like, as a kid, you're like aware of who Tom Hanks is. And it was really a video rental rather than a cinema thing. It's his best film. 
or it's i mean i'm not sure if it's better than in seattle but it does a very different thing it's certainly better than you've got mail in terms of meg ryan tom hanks team-ups and in terms of turner and hooch fuck me that era tom hanks probably not as good as big but less problematic now um it's just one of the i think it's an absolute beauty it's it, it's i love it in the same way that i love hudsucker proxy it's like a it's a deliberate fairy tale but it's also um it's quite psychologically uh complicated and um and for someone that suffers from depression i just think it's like such a beautiful film with amazing performances and it's just, it's incredibly funny oh i love it i love it so much Love it. And anything with a shipwreck in it is, I'm on board with. I'm on board with. I feel like I, I should watch it again. I've heard a few people say that, how much they enjoy it. I, I always think of it as being a bit kind of like like another one. But like it, it does make me think, oh, I should revisit that then. I don't yeah. think I've given think, it a fair I, crack. I think Turner and Hooch is bad. I think, I, I can't remember when the last time I saw it is, but I, 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 I remember at the time thinking this is shit, right? And I, I, and at the time, I've, you know, not only is it a bad Tom Hanks film, but K-9 starring J- Jim Belushi is much better. And you go, oh, God. Like, it's not even as good as a Jim Belushi film. Do you know what I mean? It's kind of like Turner and I, I thought that at the time. I remember thinking that at the time, enjoying K9 yeah. much more. Yeah, I loved K9. I mean, I haven't. To be, I mean, I haven't watched it over and over again. And no, to be I mean, fair, you're probably more likely to watch Turner and Hooch these days because um, it's got Tom Hanks in, and and it will come up, and you'll go, "Hey, I haven't seen this Tom Hanks film. I hated that film." Um, but uh, but of that. Era, yeah, I think definitely Joe versus Volcano was really kind of overlooked. Except for the fact that I saw it randomly. Maybe I saw it around a friend's house. I remember thinking it was really dark because it's about a man that's going to kill himself in a volcano. But it's really light and frothy. And if you said, hey, have you seen this Tom Hanks film about a man that's going to throw himself and kill himself into a, in a volcano? You'd think, that sounds dark. It's not. It's like the lightest, most... Uh, joyful for oh, it's so good but um but it's just one of those films that i think i saw around a friend's house and it stuck with me and i've watched it over and over and over again my entire life but i don't feel like i've ever overwatched it and i'll notice something different in it and it certainly means a lot i was a sad kid you know so i sort of like related to a lot of the things in the film then when i was growing up but i think certainly looking back on it Watching it again through adult eyes, now that I've had forty years of, <laughs> of uh, uh, you know crushed dreams and disappointment, I think watching Joe versus the Volcano. It's, it, I like films in general, but when I love a film, it will be a film that grows up with you uh, and means different things to you throughout your life. And I think those are the ones that really have longevity. And um, Joe versus the Volcano. It just feels like, all oh, right, it's a disposable early 90s Tom Hanks movie, Meg Ryan movie. And then, you know, 30 years later, still watching it and still getting stuff out of it. And I think, yeah, it's beautiful. Beautiful. Uh, but I didn't watch that this week. What have you watched this week, Nathaniel? Well, I tell you what, you sent me a text that asked me if I'd seen the film Tusk. I've oh, yeah. never seen it. So I thought, 
I'll give it a go because it's one of those films I'm intrigued by. It's one of the later Kevin Smith movies, and he did a couple around that time, that and Red State, which felt yeah. like different. I haven't seen either, and it was, but they felt like different type of films than what he normally made. And I remember being a bit kind of intrigued and being a bit like, I'll give them a go, but I never did. And so when so you I said it, I thought, I'll give it a go. Yeah, so I hadn't seen, I haven't, I still haven't seen Red State. Mm-hmm. And I can't remember at what point in his career, this Kevin Smith's career. So, so he'd done well. He definitely had done sort of like Jane Silent Bob Straight Back. He'd done Clerks too, right? I think and, so. He did that film Cop Out, didn't he, with Bruce right. Willis? And it got absolutely kind of like soul destroyed by working with because he was in Die Hard. 4, Kevin Smith was in Die Hard Four, mm-hmm. uh, and I think Bruce Willis kind of thought Kevin Smith was funny, so Kevin Smith. Um, wrote a film called A Couple of Dicks, which is about two detectives um, uh, who became uh, Bruce Willis and Tracy Morgan. Mm-hmm. And then they were told that they can't call their film A Couple of Dicks. Uh, so in Copping Out, he called the show Cop Out because it's about cops. Right, fine. Okay, great. So it's kind of like got a meta title, Um. because those of us in the know know that it was meant to be called something else. Uh, He had such a miserable time with um, Bruce Willis that he... So when he did Red State, was Red State first? Yeah, Red State, I think he's like the year before, I believe. So when he did Red State... 2013-ish. Oh, Red State was after Cop Out, Tusk was the film he made after that. Right, okay. So, Red, so when he did Red State, what he did was, um, I think he got disillusioned. Red State was 2011, fucking hell. So you think he became disillusioned with sort of like, he was an indie filmmaker, really sort of like uh, a very beloved indie filmmaker, with, well, he still is, with uh, a very passionate fan base. Uh, and with sort of like stuff like Die Hard 4 and Cop Out, he's sort of like banging his head against ma- the mainstream and becoming kind of like, I don't know, like a Robert Rodriguez. Well, even, do you know what I mean? Just that, that, that switch between being like this indie guy and being kind of like a little bit more mainstream. Um, oh, he did uh, He did that um, Zach and Miri make a porno as well, didn't he? Oh, yeah, he did. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which is so, I think he's, he's sort of like, um, he was a trailblazer when he started. And then when he did Zack and Miri, it kind of felt like this bald faced, I'm going to do a Judd Apatow movie. Yeah. And I'm going to put Judd Apatow actors in it. And I'm going to kind of, Zack and Miri was 2008. Um, so he was sort of like banging his head against the mainstream. And then afterwards, he was just like, right, I'm going to make a siege movie called Red State. I'm not going to release it theatrically. Fuck all that. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to do like a roadshow thing where everyone's going to buy a ticket for $80, $120, however much it was. And I'm going to basically take it town to town and I'm going to do a Q&A afterwards and I'm going to screen it for my fans, my fans only. Everyone was sort of like outraged it was as much as $80. But I think if you, you probably pay about $50, $60, however much to see him do one of his an oh, audience sorry. with... Kevin Smith, anyway. So I kind of, like, see the justification. It's just that, would you pay $80 to see Red State? So it was kind of like this thing that he tried. And then I think he did it kind of again with Tusk. Tusk. Right, so I I, I was in sort of like a bit of a weird mood, and I thought, right, I've never seen Tusk. I'll give Tusk a go. Uh, it's got Justin Long in it. 
Johnny Depp, although that's kind of like meant to be. Mm-hmm. I've seen that also guy? from Die Hard 4. Also from Die Hard 4. And also, uh, I like Kevin Smith. Oh, I, I mean, I watched, what did I watch? Uh, the latest Jane Silent reboot film. Oh, yeah, I've not seen that. Uh, when you listen to, I mean, it's, I did not think it was good. After Tusk was Yoga Hoses. So his daughter, I can't remember what his daughter's called, mm. but his daughter has a cameo in Tusk and then she's in Yoga Hoses and then she goes on to be kind of like um, uh, Harley. That's it, Harley Quinn Smith. Um, she goes on to have kind of like, uh, she plays Jason Moose's daughter in Jane, Jane Silent Bob Reboot. Didn't think much of Jane Silent Bob Reboot. Um, although it's nice that, you know, he did something... Well, I don't know. I mean, I was going to say it's nice he did something for the fans, but that seems to be, like, all he does now. Um, but I watched a really interesting interview with him about making it and his passion for the film in the interview was kind of, like, disproportionate from what you actually end up seeing. But he had this really lovely kind of, like, anecdote about how amazing Justin Long is, how he kind of, like, comes on stage, uh, on set and transforms the entire environment and he's so sort of like skilled and so quick thinking that he can improvise and he can do everything and he can do anything and Justin Long is amazing so he met him I don't know when he met him but he was in Zach and Miriam I think and um and they've worked together ever since so he made this film Tusk and I didn't know anything about Tusk going in other than it's about it's like, sort of like a horror film about a guy that makes uh another guy into a walrus. And you go, that sounds weird. Um, don't know how it came about, don't know anything about it. And I watched it, and I watched it in two halves. I watched the first half, and I got to a point where I was just like, I'm not in the mood for this anymore. And then I thought, for com- as I'm a completist, I watched the second half. I watched the second half, and then I flipped on it, and I was just like, actually, I think that this film is... Uh, it's, it's it's either terrible or it's amazing, and then and then there's a bit on the closing credits which sort of explains where it comes about, and I think that sort of like deflates it a little bit. That's because, exactly what I thought. Yeah, because I think I think if you'd have just left it like, what sort of fevered imagination would have come up with this? You go, that's incredible. But when you actually find out where it originated from, it's kind of a, a little bit like for a start you go. Oh, my God, that's a very clever way of doing it. And then you kind of, like, go... But it's sort of substance-free, isn't it? It didn't come from anything. But anyway, so, um, I saw this film. very rare that I've seen a film that you haven't seen. And I messaged you, I said, have you seen this film? I just assumed that you must have. You haven't. What did you think? Um, Kind of exactly the same as you, I think. Um, I watched it. I'm kind of a bit... I think when I see him interviewed i'm always struck by how much i like him interviewed mm-hmm. and then and then i also watched all those kind of movies when they were coming out and i was never i was never a hundred percent on any of them like i never really liked clerks that much um i remember quite liking more rats and quite liking that's it i almost felt like there was always something a bit not quite almost almost a good film and mm. and I, but I, I keep seeing them with the expectation that almost that I almost felt like I liked them more than I ever liked them. So I'd almost like quite look forward to them as well. Like, oh, that's coming out. Oh, God, I'll go and see that. 
and I'd always be a bit disappointed by all of them. And then I think he kind of, he sort of, in the meantime, become this sort of king geek kind of character. And I found that a bit tiresome and a bit like, I'm not really into that. Uh, but I like him, when I see him interviewed properly, I think he seems like a really kind of sweet person. And I warm to him. So I'd sort of, I'd kind of stopped going to see his films. I hadn't seen any of, hadn't seen Red State, hadn't seen Tusk. I think I'd seen the, maybe I'd seen Jay and Silent Bob Straight Back. I guess that's early 2000s. I think that's probably the last film of his I saw. So I hadn't seen any of these. And Tusk, going into it, it starts off much more, I was expecting it to be quite a straight horror film. But the first half hour isn't that, oh, probably less than that, 20 minutes. Feels very Kevin Smith film. And the Justin Long character feels like he's like a Kevin Smith avatar, right? Sure. But I think that one of my biggest complaints about Kevin Smith, and I think what happened was he was a filmmaker and then he started making a lot of money doing these audiences with, where then he became kind of like a Hollywood insider gossip guy. Yeah. who's kind of like, I'm one of you guys, and I'm on the other side of the wall in Hollywood, and I've gone through and I've had this experience with Tim Burton, and I've written Superman Lives, and all of this stuff has happened to me, and now I'm coming back and I'm telling you all about it, and it's crazy. And it's sort of like a fine... It's a fine line to... what It's kind of like you're either one or the other. And yeah. so now he's... he he. he Rather than become a filmmaker, he became kind of like the king geek that has the camera. And yes. so he makes films, but it's kind of like, he, it's like the, he, he didn't have a barrier between him and his audience. So it's just kind of like... Yeah. And I think increasingly but, he might have made films for that audience more than he was thinking think, about making a film for everyone. 100%. I think, I think, also, I think he tried to make kind of films like Zach and Miri, where he wanted to be kind of like, let's make a mainstream thing, and Cop Out is like, let's make a mainstream thing. And uh, not that, uh, you know, he, he aimed at that, but um, uh, and either his core audience kind of like felt a bit betrayed, like I liked him before he was famous, or um, they just didn't sort of like find the mainstream success so he was just like well I'll, I'll, I'll knuckle down and I'll do what I'm good at but what I'd say my biggest complaint with Kevin Smith is that as a filmmaker you know over like 20 years it didn't feel like he'd sort of like on a technical level matured mm. you know it was like Clerks is so basic but that's part of its charm but when you're watching a film 15 20 years later and it's just as basic like a lot of stuff in chasing amy is still like on a technical level just very sort of like basic and locked off shots and all of this and it's kind of like you're watching it you go right what i was really impressed with with tusk was it felt like an actual film and you mm. while you're watching it you could have you know i think he's done a brilliant job in directing it i think it looks great i mm. think um and it's obviously quite a low budget film when prosthetics and stuff come in at later and there's a bit of really bad CGI at the beginning but in terms of how it looks it looks slick it looks like an actual film and I just thought you know hats off to him uh, not literally I'm going to keep mine on but uh, it's radio but hats off to him he's he's done like an amazing job it, it feels like a proper film and if I hadn't known it was Kevin Smith and it didn't have Justin Long in it I'd have kind of like you could have told me it was anyone that made it and I'd have gone oh right fine but because it's him, not even in a patronising way, it's like maybe in doing, I haven't seen Red State, but maybe in doing stuff like Red State and yes. this, 
which is as far from Clerks and Chasing Amy really as you can get. And it was just sort of like such a refreshing relief to see him just do something different. Mm. And and I still think this, even at the end, that Tusk might be my... And he's like one of those people that you go... Like, I agree with you. So it's like, I like the idea of his films more than I like his films. And, um, and I'm sort of like on his side, even though I don't necessarily mm. like everything that he's done or agree necessarily where he's coming from. I'm sort of on his side and I'm just waiting. And Tusk for me was just like, um, like it's so weird and inventive and unusual and unpleasant as well. I really yeah. found it unpleasant. Um, but it's also sort of like got its tongue in cheek. And um, I thought it was just, I, I think he's done a great job with it. And I think it's technically it's his best film. Mm-hmm. And uh, it might be his best film. I was, I was of the opinion by the end of the film, oh, this is like the best thing he's done. And the stuff I really liked about it, I really loved Michael Parks' performance. You kind of he's, get it, um, and it's, it's like, I, can, I, I know he's someone that all those guys used, and they're all like Tarantino and Rodriguez. And I could kind of go, yeah, he seems quite cool. But in this, you go, oh, he's great. And it, it's like the first thing I've seen him in. It's, he's phenomenal. Like, he's absolutely phenomenal in it. He looks so much like Brian Cranston in places as well, mm. like with a wig and stuff. But he's, yeah, he's absolutely phenomenal in it. He's the sheriff at the beginning of From Dust Till Dawn. So he's been kind of like in that circle for like, since the late 90s. But and, he's um, so good. And it's also like, the dialogue that's written for him is great. It's really kind of rich. And it feels like, oh, he's really kind of, it felt like, Kevin Smith really stepped up his game and it felt like he was always someone known for doing good dialogue, but this felt like he was doing something different. He's doing good dialogue with a really interesting character. I think with Justin Long and uh, Hayley Joel Osment, um, I think that it, it, it's, it's, it's well written, but it's still within yeah. the Kevin Smith universe. Yeah. But with Michael Parks, like his stuff is just, it's incredible, but also... This is such a weird thing to be talking about because it's this film where his man gets turned into a human walrus, right? But it's um, but Michael Pox is crazy, right? But this, but what is impressive with the script is, yeah, he's crazy and he has these huge, crazy sort of like monologues that are really, really like tenderly performed, and it does such a good job in sort of like um convincing you that he's not that he's not crazy because there's never a moment where he's not crazy but sort of like selling it to you selling mm. this car he sells the entire concept to you like yeah sure i buy this yeah um oh fuck but so I, now it's it's right we've done half an hour and we've got to play now admittedly this is an absolutely terrible alice cooper song um so we're going to play this terrible i'd rather we've got to do it Got to do We've it. got to do it, but we'll put a pin in this because I've got something else to say. Unbelievably. <laughs> Nick Helm and Nathaniel Metcalf's fan club on Fubar Radio. We're back. We're back. Are we back? We're back. Come on, we're back. Come on, come on, come bloody on. Right. So we're talking about the movie. Task. Task. Um, 
yeah, I, I, I really, and I also really like Johnny Depp in it. Mm. At no point right. did I think it. At no point did I think it wasn't Johnny Depp. No, uh, didn't know he was in it. Uh, going in. But um, they, they, but he's wearing like prosthetics, and you're meant to be like. Who's and he's got this? weird uh, eyebrows on and things. He's got eyebrows and a moustache and a big fake nose, and he's doing a French accent or a Canadian French accent, and uh, and you're kind of like meant to go like, who's this uh, uh, as of yet unknown actor? And it's kind of like, well, oh, it's Johnny Depp, isn't it? It's, it's, it looks exactly like Johnny Depp with a fake nose. And totally, the film is shifting every sort of ten minutes or so to being a different type of thing. Which and I it works. Mind. It works, yeah. But I think that works because I think the walrus stuff is so deeply unpleasant and Justin Long is such an unlikable character mm-hmm. that, um, that uh, having Johnny Depp turn up, you go, finally, there's someone I can root for. That, you know, it's not like this torture torture porn saw kind of movie where there's this guy that gets when johnny depp shows up he's he kind of like saves that but no because the film isn't awful up until then it's just deeply unpleasant and then when johnny depp comes along the tone shifts to much broader and quite comedic and that actually takes a lot of the unpleasantness away because then you just see it as like this is a very dark comedy Mm. and it kind of makes it palatable but i enjoyed I enjoyed the journey that the sort of film takes you on, where you're kind of like, you know, being dragged from one side to the other, and you kind of like don't know how it's all going to end up. Go on. I know, and I liked, yeah. It feels a bit like the Justin Long character feels like he's a sort of Kevin Smith avatar. And something it made me think, oh, is this like a bit of a an apology? I wondered if he was like, he'd felt like he was a bit of an arsehole at one point in his career. Or something, I sort of wondered, like, oh, is that because he's almost like he's doing penance for it or something? Well, I sort of had that, that sort of feeling. The thing that starts it all off because there was this huge sort of like um, one of like the first um, viral internet things was in the nineties, and it was Star Wars Kid, mm. and it was this it was this kid that had filmed himself in like at school in like an empty drama studio, spinning a broom around. Like pretending it's a lightsaber, and it went viral. And uh, I guess lots of people... I mean, I don't know what happened to that guy. But... Um, so the film starts with kind of like something that's like a nod to that. Well, a nod to It's basically that, but it's called The Kill Bill Kid. And um, Justin Long is kind of like doing a podcast. I don't... Like, there's no point in kind of like explaining it. And in actual fact, what I liked about it was watching the film unfold before my eyes. What I will say is... Um, over the end credits, basically, you're spending the entire film going, what the fuck is this? This is the craziest film I've ever seen. And at the end credits, they sort of, like, go, ta-da, this is how we came up with it. And you kind of like go, oh, really? And it's yeah. disappointing. And what yeah. that reminded me of, right? Now, go with me. What that reminds me right? Guess what that reminded me of, you know? I don't know. It reminded me of Hal Ashby's being there. I've not seen it being there. Never ever seen it. You what? You've not seen, seen being it. there? Never but seen being it. There. Right, okay, I've not seen it till this year, so that's not that crazy, right? <laughs> uh, and... No, but uh, but uh, and our guest coming up, uh, one of one of their favourite films is Harold and Maud, which is like, you know, when we were doing Uncle, Harold and Maud was always like a reference point. And then when you watch Rushmore, 
yeah. and go, oh, fucking hell, there's absolutely... I watched, um, I watched Rushmore. I haven't seen Rushmore. It's not one of my favourites. I like... Men, again, Royal Tenenbaums is like one of our next guest favourite films, right? Um, I don't know why I'm spoiling it for her. Or, or him. Uh, I'm, I'm terrible at this. I'm all unprofessional again. And um, the more I try and be professional, the less professional it comes across. So just don't bother. Just stop trying, mate. Right? Like John Robbins is never going to come back. Fine. So, um, so when you... Royal Tenenbaums, what in my all-time top five, right? Rushmore is a really good film. I just don't love it. I don't connect to it on an emotional level that I connect to Royal Tenenbaums. When you re-watch Rushmore, you go, there's absolutely no way on fucking hell that Wes Anderson has not seen Harold and Maud. You just know. Right? I probably saw Harold and Maud for the first time about a decade ago. And it was a bit like, what? <laughs> so watch it go. It just feels like it's obviously such a touchstone for him that I was like, yeah. oh, God, I can't believe it. But sort of like um, Wes Anderson, probably not with Rushmore, but like Wes Anderson became kind of like a very sort of like synthetic Hal Ashby, where it's kind of like, it's all of like the sort of like same vibes, but it's it's so constructed that it's kind of like there's no... Uh, there's nothing kind of like um, real about it, whereas Hal Ashby's kind of like still, you know, like he's filming on the real streets, you know, uh, when he films on the streets. Um, but um, so, uh, so, so, oh, Hal Ashby, like he's directed a lot of films, it turns out. Um, but he's, uh, for me, he's really famous for three films, which is Harold and Maud, Being There, and The Last Detail. And I've seen. Uh, yeah, no, I didn't know that he did shampoo, and, oh. I, and I haven't, I haven't seen that. But, um, uh, but I looked it up, and I was just like, I did not know that Harold Hal Ashby had done shampoo. Right, hands, hands up. I, I get it. I discovering stuff along with everyone. Else. Oh, but what too. I would say, what I would say, is. Being there is this film, which is Peter Sellers. Now, Peter Sellers had a roller coaster career, and then towards the, hmm, like, so I didn't know that this happened, right? So, so he made the Pink Panther, where he was a bit part in an ensemble film that basically starred uh, David Niven, right? Mm -hmm. And Inspector Clouseau turns up, and he's this small character in a larger film. He's a bit and, like uh, Johnny Depp in, uh... in Tusk. Um, and then what happened with them was that Peter Sellers wanted to work with Blake Edwards again, and they had this uh, play that was called A Shot in the Dark. Um, and uh, A Shot in the Dark was um, uh, adapted uh, into a film that didn't originally have Inspector Clouseau in it, but Blake Edwards said, I want to work with uh, fucking Peter Sellers again. And, um, and so they adapted a play into an Inspector Clouseau vehicle. They made that. That's why it's got nothing to do with Pink Panther. Then they made um, Alan Arkin. Uh, I think Peter yeah. Sellers and Blake Edwards fell out. And then Alan Arkin came up for the third one. Yeah. And Alan Arkin played Inspector Clouseau in Inspector Clouseau, which I assumed came much later. Then, like, six years later, um, Peter Sellers needed a boost in the arm. And so, uh, so he came back and he did um, uh, Inspector Clouseau movies until he died. And, and he did that one a year from then on, but there was a big gap. There was a big gap. And then, uh, so, so before he died, he made this film with Hal Ashby called Being There, which was sort of 
uh, Peter Sellers' pet project that he had sort of cultivated from a book and he'd sort of like, you know, shepherded this thing through production and then he gave it to Hal Ashby. Hal Ashby made it. It's Peter Sellers, everyone says it's his best performance. It, I liked it. I'm sure if I watched it over and over again and I'd seen it earlier in my life, I would have more of a connection to it, like Harold and Maud. But with this, it's kind of like, yeah, 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 it's not as good as Harold and Maud, but yeah, yeah. So he made this film, and it's Peter Sellers doing this very sort of like, um, he's basically, um, he's a guy, I think it's meant to be a lot broader than it comes across, because it comes, I didn't know it was a comedy until about halfway through. But it's Peter Sellers doing this sort of like, he's basically a guy who is a, a butler for this other guy, and the guy dies, and now he's sort of like, he spent his whole life looking after this guy in his mansion and now he's got to live his own life and he's an idiot and all the only thing he knows is stuff that he's learned off the tv and now he's like out in the real world on the streets like, interacting with people and people think that he's a genius but he's not he's an idiot right that's what being there is and it's this amazing charming performance very detailed very small very kind of like refined and then you know there's a lot of it's like a it's like a classic film, right? And then at the end, there's this Eddie Murphy style blooper reel, right? <laughs> and you go what? And when they showed it in front of all of the people, um, it, like I think it's really great because it kind of like lets you in on the fact that what they were aiming for was a comedy, and they were enjoying themselves on set, and they're all laughing. And also, it's amazing to see like this. Um, really personal kind of like, uh, you know, you see Peter Sellers kind of that, like laughing, making himself laugh on set because he's doing something stupid. It's like, it's like, a, you know, behind the scenes, you're actually, you're actually there and you're like, I've never seen Peter Sellers like this before, blah, blah, blah. But Peter Sellers was furious with it, wanted Hal Ashby to remove it and he blames it. He blames the blooper reel at the end of the film for the reason why he never got an Oscar just before he died. Well, I'm sure he still doesn't feel like that way because he's dead. But, but, and he died really early. Like, he was, like, in his early mid-50s. Um, so it's kind of like, I think he was really angry with being there because he knew that it was sort of, like, his best performance. And the blooper reel undercut it for him. And uh, that just, when I watched Tusk, which is about as far from being there as you can get, you kind of like go, well, it's so weird that you got away with it. You know, you made this film and you completely got away with it. And then in the end credits, you do a thing and you go, like, oh, wow. Yeah, it, I, think, I think it really just unraveled it for And I just think, because it makes it seem like a joke rather than I'm making this film that's really odd and unusual. It's and it's, like, it's just like, oh, basically just, it's a bit of a joke, really. It's, it's a bit of a, it's like one of those sort of fun things where, like, like comedians often have conversations where they go, hey, do you know what would be good? If instead of doing my set, I did this other thing. And you go, that'd be awful. That's why I always, and that's what it felt like. The conversation at the end feels like them going, hey, wouldn't it be funny if we did a film where this happened, then this happened? And you watch it and you go, yeah, but it is good. It's good. And it's probably your best film. And then you kind of unravel it by going, it's like going, only joking. It feels like it's, it's, it's made fun of the audience. It, it's sort of making fun of you for having enjoyed it. 
It's like it's making oh, fun right. of it's making it's making fun of film. It's just like in a way, if the film works, it doesn't matter how you got there. Mm. And and it's like this very unusual, odd, dark, twisted story. Yeah. And you get to it, and you get to the end of it, and you kind of like go, "Wow!" You kind of got through that. Also, you're feeling lots of things. I think as a film, it's like very skilled because you're feeling lots of things, and it's lots of different genres, and you it makes you feel sick at some points. Um, and and you're looking th- through all of these, you know, this this bad kind of like prosthetic makeup and CGI stuff, and you're kind of like seeing the best in this thing, and you're really kind of going with it, and you're wishing for the best for it, and you get to the end, and then yeah, like you said, they pull the rug from out of you, and you kind of like, go, do you know what? If you'd have cut that, I'd have just thought that that was an art house movie. Yeah, an art it house. It feels like movie. one of those like films where someone says, "There's this really weird film from the seventies, but no one's seen it, and this happens, and you go, what? And he'd watch it and go, who made that? Where, where did that come from? And it feels like that, like you've uncovered some like really odd, odd movie that's a real kind of yeah. like undiscovered gem or something. And then at the end, it's what a bit like, the, oh. What was the starting point? It's like something like Edward Scissorhands. But the thought process behind that wasn't Tim Burton being all sensitive and writing Edward Scissorhands, but going, imagine this, right? There's this wanker, right, that lives up a mountain. He's got scissors friends, right? And he comes down and he causes all sorts of problems and then he has to fuck off back up the mountain at the end of it. Is you kind of like go, oh, it kind of changes how you feel about Edward Scissorhands. Do you know what I mean? Um, Anyway, we've got to do fun. Oh, right, well, that's amazing that you watched it. Yeah, wow. I can't believe we got through an hour. I did a lot of talking. Do you want to do the fan mail? I can do. Um, it's fan well, should mail. we let Should we let Brian make? <laughs> Brian make. Brian Jones. Uh, yeah, let, let's see uh, what happens when um, Brian May does the fan mail. Yeah, let's take see. it away. Take it away, Brian. Oh my! Oh. Um, can't remember. <laughs> oh. Can't sort of. It sort of sounds. Uh, uh, no, let's not. It's not well, Brian. Isn't it, Brian, <laughs> What's yeah, Brian. Ah, oh, Brian. Um, Brian's uh, Zoom's gone down. <laughs> right. Okay. Okay. Oh, well, we'll do Brian Johnson. Yeah. Hi, Nick and Matt. I'm walking from home now, so I'm powering through your podcast, and I've made it to January 2020. Love the episodes with Kim Newman and Omar Alaboy. Did you get to go to Tapas Revolution before lockdown? No. No. It's a shame. Just listening to you talk about a sex town, and that reminded me of something I bought at a Tenacious D game back in 2006. They were selling these branded comrades. Wow, that's brilliant. With a handy hook to keep by your bedside. Yeah, that's exactly what I'm talking about. Well, Tenacious D did it first, so there you go. I couldn't bring myself to say, I'll have one of those T-shirts in medium and one comrade. To the nice lady, to the nice lady at the merch stand, so I called it a flannel. And the bloke queuing next to me said under his breath, "You're not gonna want to wash your face with that loaf." How we laughed. Anyway, back to work. Back to listening to episode seventy-seven. No spoilers, but just series two end of the cliffhanger. Goes along, Leanne. Is this the end of series two? Yeah, we're back. We must be near the end of series two. Fuck! Is this the last one? No, he's got to be one next week, I think. Okay. Hey, Nick and Nat. Hey, Nick and Nat, loving the show. I've been searching out some VHS classics and found a copy of Q. The Wind Serpent. I'm in two minds about it. If it's total nonsense or a unique and inspired piece of cinema, I'm veering towards the former, but still loving this silly yet earnest 80s throwback. Have you seen it? 
All the best. Henry or Webster. Yeah, I think it's great. I, don't I love it's... it. Larry Cohen. Mm. Um, there's a really good documentary on Amazon Prime. Yes, there is. King Cohen? Called King Cohen. And Cue the Winged Serpent is a fucking absolute... If you like Ray Harryhausen and you like low-budget, kind of grimy uh, 80s movies that are set in New York, then you will love Cue the Winged Serpent. It's like that perfect mix of... Uh, Gritty crime movie and Ray Harryhausen movie, do you think? Yeah, perfect. Perfect description. Love it. Um, hi, Nick. Just listen to, you, uh, to your conundrum. You want to lose four stone. The only way to go, keto. Trust me. The food you eat is amazing. You soon forget about bread, pasta, and rice. My meals are always at least five veg and a lovely bit of meat. I also fast, so don't eat before midday and take cold showers every morning. All these things are biohacks and have really turned my life around over the last two years. I was di- diagnosed with MS ten years ago. I was 34. <laughs> it doesn't feel appropriate. <laughs> and thought my life was over. Energy levels are now brilliant, and I've lost four stone. If it can help a disabled person, I can definitely it can definitely help you. Watch Fat Fiction on Amazon Prime or Magic Pill on YouTube. It's a game changer. Eat as a caveman. Lots of good fats. Delicious, by the way. And protein. Cut the carbs, and you'll soon lose weight. And I've done. I've not done any exercise. Limited mobility and hate the gym. Good luck, Morris. Thanks for that, Morris. Um, I am thinking about uh, that, and um, yeah, really good. And I suppose if you add, add a bit of gym to it as well, um, you'll be even uh, in even one would be in even better shape. So um, yeah, thanks for that, Keto. Right, it's been on my radar. Uh, how about you, Nat? Are you any closer to your goal? Um. Probably not, and if anything, I'm probably trying to go out more, so I might be eating more poorly. But I'm aware now that once I'm out in the real world, that I'll start understanding whether or not I'm happy with that. I had to leave uh, the house yesterday to do uh, some filming for something, and uh, I literally couldn't find any clothes that fit me. So I ended up wearing a uh, Alice Cooper Christmas T-shirt, because it was the only thing that didn't make me, you know... Uh, looked like I had tits. So, there we go. Uh, and I did. And I just wore a shirt over it. And I think we're all going to go through a stage after lockdown where we all go, fuck it, this is what I look like now. Yeah. Until got, we get back to it. I got a new jumper online, and it turned up and it was massive. But it's fine. But it's probably not the best thing to have picked. <laughs> I, got, I got a new pair of trousers online, which uh, were my thighs, and uh, I couldn't even get my legs in, so... It's horrific. Let's play a song and get our guest on. Uh, Keep writing in, guys. Nick Helm and Nathaniel Metcalf's fan club on FUBAR Radio. Back live in the studio. We're not live in the studio. Uh, we are pre-recorded, uh, but um, uh, and we're not in a studio. I'm in uh, my office, <laughs> and Nathaniel's in his washroom. Uh, we are now joined uh, by Amanda Ladd Jones, who has just made um, a film uh, called Laddie, the man behind the movies, about her uh, father, Alan Ladd Jr., uh, and his uh, you know, phenomenal career in Hollywood. Um, but before we do that, 
we're gonna what have we just listened to there we've just listened to fleet foxes songline why did you pick that amanda what was what was it about fleet foxes uh i just am listening to a fair amount of fleet foxes right now i always think it's such a hard question to answer like what you're you know what music you like and things like that because it always changes and i always i mean i have things that i love and they're staples you know but um uh, yeah, I always think like, oh, right now I'm listening to, but anyway, so I've been listening to a lot of Fleet Foxes recently. My, my husband is, is more the, the curator in, in our house. Uh, mm-hmm. He tends to find the music, but then I'm like, well, I'll hear it on a playlist. And I'm like, oh, what's that? What's that? And so I found that I kept asking him what, I mean, they have a very distinct sound. So, you know, by the second, who's this, you know, I, I got it, <laughs> you know, yeah. but, uh, I it's kind of like 80s feeling to me, you know, and I know you guys are fans of the 80s. Um, <laughs> is that correct? We lived it. Oh, we lived, yeah. lived exactly through the entire 80s. <laughs> so, yeah. I, went to, I, I went to see the Fleet Foxes in um, Brixton. I think they were in Brixton Academy. My ex-girlfriend lo- uh, really liked them, and I'd never heard of them before. And we went to see the Fleet Foxes. And um, it was re- it's really weird thinking about it because... It was crowded, and we were like, you know, chest to back, like we were all rammed in. And everybody, I just remember everybody watching it in silence, and they were all staring up at the stage because it's like it's, you know, obviously it's musical, but it's kind of like it's very. Um, uh, it gives you. It's like there's a vibe to it. Or there's sort of like a tone to the music, uh, it, you know. Um, it feels sort of cinematic in a way, and everyone was sort of like stood in, in, in like this crowded thing, and they were all stood and watching the stage like they were watching a UFO land. Um, it was it was like this great. I, I, I can't remember a single thing about the gig other than the fact that we all just stood there in silence for two hours, just watching this uh, these aliens on stage. But um, yeah, so I've heard of it, but I heard of it through my partner as well. Um, yeah, I can imagine actually, I've never seen them, but I can imagine their show being like that. Cause I don't, I can't imagine how you would really sort of move <laughs> at a Fleet Foxes show. Cause their music is like you say, it's like a vibe and it's, to me, it's funny that you said cinematic. Cause I feel like it's very, like it kind of reminds me of an eighties movie in a way, you know, like a, a song that would have been on an eighties movie soundtrack or something like that, you know, their music. Or is it sort of like, uh, now, Nathaniel, is it like, mm-hmm. am I saying it right? Is it like Tangerine Dream? Is that Yeah. Band? Although it's interesting, because I, I only know of um, Fleet Foxes in the abstract, and I heard that track. But to say, I, I heard it while I was also talking to you. So I was, I was only half listening. I always thought of Fleet Foxes as being quite folky. So when you're saying well, Tangerine Dream and cinematic, I'm like, is it? So maybe I maybe I haven't given them a, a fair enough whack. I do think of them as folky, though, too. But I guess okay. that's the kind of movie that I'm thinking of, that sort of, like, 80s, like, sweet, you know, mm-hmm. kind of... Sorry, I have a dog in the background. I can see it. I can see it. And he has decided that he wants to be fed right now. So he's going to drag <laughs> his bowl uh, along the floor. So I'm hoping he moves on, but... You know, we might have to shake it up a bit with me. Oh, it's not It could be an action. A dog food break. Yeah. Sorry. <laughs> and I have, yeah. cat, I have two cats that will probably walk in front of the screen at some point. Two. So. Okay. That's all right. 
This is the modern um, world. Yeah. See, but so in my head, when I say cinematic, what I'm what I'm remembering from the gig, and uh, I can't remember anything about the gig other than we were all <laughs> stood there, is that I'm imagining it like John Carpenter, like sort of like, soundscapes and yes. But am I imagining it wrong? No, no, that's what I, that's the same thing with me. There's, it's like soundscapey, vibey, like not of this time. It doesn't feel to me, you know, so. But Um, you're really, you're really uh, more of a fan of Beck. I am a big fan of Beck too. I am. I had two shows that I saw at the, at the Hollywood Bowl. I used to live in Los Angeles. Um, and they were two of the best shows. Well, three, actually. I mean, the Hollywood Bowl is such a good venue. Um, we have a concert behind me. So <laughs> it's fine. It's fine. I, I keep trying to, like, tune it out. But anyway, it's three, fine. <laughs> three shows at the Hollywood Bowl that I would say were my the best shows I've seen were Beck... Edward Sharp and the Magnetic Zeros, and I don't know if you know them. Stop it. And um, <laughs> ELO, ELO was such ELO. a great. And then Radiohead was also. I saw three Radiohead shows at the Hollywood Bowl, and one was like amazing. And then the other two were not as great. I'm so heartbroken to even say, but yes. Um, yeah, anyway, I went that's... to see when I was in Los Angeles. When I was in Los Angeles, I went to see Ben Folds support Elvis Costello at the Hollywood Bowl, and Ben Folds was inc- that was with another ex-girlfriend, and Ben Folds was absolutely incredible, and then Elvis Costello was one of the oh well, I don't want <laughs> it was one of the worst things I've ever seen. But um, I heard but, that but... about him. My sister saw him at the bowl too, and she said he was like bored, couldn't be bothered, you know, didn't put much energy into it. He did sort of like this experimental jazz odyssey thing, and it was like ah, uh, it was it just it, yeah. But Ben Folds was on before, and it was incredible. Um, you used to live in Los Angeles. Where do you live now? In London. In London? Oh, Are you in London? Yeah, yeah, I'm in a city. Are you in London right now? I oh, wow. Hello. I am. Hello, neighbor. Yeah, yeah that's great. <laughs> um, right, so, so, when you, uh, so how long have you lived in London? Since August. I moved. So during? Moved, yeah, during the pandemic. <laughs> how was that? How long had you lived in Los Angeles? For, um, gosh, uh, uh, 19 years. Well, I grew up in Los Angeles and then I lived in New York city, um, for like 10 years or so. And then, uh, I moved back to Los Angeles with my husband who's English. Um, and we met here in London, but then he moved to New, to New York. We got married there and then we moved to, uh, Los Angeles and we lived there for, yeah, just shy of 19 years and then came here in, um, in August. Had you been to London before? I had actually when I, I, well, I was born here so that there was that. Um, but I also, I don't remember that unfortunately, <laughs> but, no, but then my parents moved back to um, America when I was six weeks old. So, you know, I like I said, I don't remember that, but, um, I, when I was in university, I came here to London and did a semester abroad at Regents college in Regents park. Um, and that was sort of indirectly how I ultimately met my husband. A friend of mine from that time became flatmates with my husband years later, and I met him through 
through my friend from, from university here. So yeah, so I had spent, um, it was in 1994. I'm dating myself. I grew up in the eighties too. So I think we're, so I'm probably older than you. It seems like I'm older than everybody these days, but you know, that's. I deny. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Good. Uh, yeah. All right. It seems like, like everywhere. I mean, when was I the right age? I was like younger than everybody forever. Now suddenly I'm older than everybody. I feel like when was I the age? Like the <laughs> right age, you know, but. I've, but, uh, I've just turned. I've just turned 40 and I feel like um, the difference between 39 and 40 is like a decade. And it's like, I was in my thirties and now I'm looking back at my youth and I'm thinking, where did it all go? Um, Yes. Yes. But let's keep it light. Um, But, uh, but all right. But when, when I was growing up and I watched films and stuff and I saw sort of like um, the Hollywood bowl was always kind of like, uh, I think it's in beaches like Bette Midler is getting ready to do a big gig at the Hollywood Bowl. And it's kind of like the Hollywood Bowl, we always felt like this unobtainable kind of like destination. And then when I went there, it was kind of like, even though I was watching Elvis Costello and not enjoying it, I was still looking at the architecture and kind of like going, oh my God, I'm actually at the Hollywood Bowl. But when you actually live in Los Angeles, do you take something like the, is it just another venue? No, no, no. Actually, I would think most people would actually say that the Hollywood Bowl is like a a kind of otherworldly experience because you're there. It only opens, you know, Los Angeles is like the the year-long hot weather, you know, no seasons. However, the Hollywood Bowl actually does have a season. And so they open in, I think, May. They start having shows. April or May, and then go to to October. So there's sort of that excitement of like, oh, it's the new season of the Hollywood Bowl, and they publish the schedule. And I feel actually I have to jump back in and say one other show. I can't believe I forgot it because this was the second to last show that I saw at the Hollywood Bowl back last, well, anyway, a couple years ago, but was Vampire Weekend, which was also great. (laughs) But uh, And then I saw The Who, which was weird and uncomfortable. I love The Who, but it was weird. It's like when I saw Where the whole show, because like, it's so geriatric, you know what I mean? Sure. Like, sure. I love classic rock and I love that music, but that's not how I envision those rock stars, you know? So oh, then yeah. to go to this show, and it's just a different energy, you know? I mean, most of the people in the audience are, you know, older. Anyway, whatever, I digress. But, um, yes, yeah, so the Hollywood Bowl. So they have seasons that they <laughs> They publish their schedule. And so then everybody's like, oh, hey, you want to, did you see, you know, you want to go to this show? Do you want to go to that show? And you kind of get your tickets in advance. Or then sometimes you can, um, you know, just hop on, I don't know if you have that here, Craigslist or whatever, but like a, you know, posting board and some, find some tickets for a show that's happening that night. And they also have, which is really cool, which is a favorite movie. There's a cat that's about to walk in front of the screen just to give you the or two. <laughs> Um, is uh, they do movies and they'll have the LA Philharmonic play the li- the score live. So that's really cool. And you can imagine John Williams movies are amazing with the Philharmonic playing mm-hmm. the live score while you're sitting there. But one thing we did, my husband and daughter and I did was we went and saw ET with the LA Philharmonic, which was so cool because ET, I mean, Steven Spielberg's movies of that time which I feel like are separate from Steven Spielberg of this time. You know, I don't think Steven Spielberg could make E.T. 
mm. or Poltergeist, even though he didn't direct Poltergeist, but you know, it was a sure, sure. Yeah. Uh, or Close Encounters, these real like Americana slice of life kind of middle class family, you know, not small ish town or whatever, you know, like that, that kind of um, thing. But E.T. being one that, you know, obviously I watched when I was a young kid and loved and actually saw at a premiere at the Cinerama Dome, which sadly now Here's a little LA. It's like somehow we've gone into a whole LA history thing, but I'll let you know this may be of relevance. Iconic landmarks. And the Cinerama Dome, that theater in Hollywood, is closing, sadly. That was just, um, I just found that out, that they, that's a pandemic casualty, but um, that's closing. Wow. Anyway, so that's where I saw E.T. for the first time when I was young. And, um, and then I saw it many, many, many times in between, but then saw it again at the Hollywood Bowl with the live mm. orchestra. But I mean, so uh, I think I think places places matter, don't they? I live in a I, I live in a flat um, in North London near Archway, and I'm basically from my window. If I stand on tiptoes, um, I can see uh, the Holloway uh, Odeon, which is the cinema that my mum took me to see. Uh, to see batteries not included and uh, and like Bambi for the first time, and it's kind of like uh, it, I'm not saying that I moved to be close to the cinema that I grew up going to, but I've been I've lived all over the country, and I've kind of like gravitated towards a place that gives me a lot of comfort. And they've just redone it as kind of like this posh cinema, and it's kind of like uh, they were just about finishing it before the pandemic, and it's kind of like you're there. At, you know, digging your fingernails in, thinking, you know, is it gonna, is it gonna survive? Is it still gonna? I mean, they've just spent all this money on it, and you can't go to it, and it's kind of like, so, yeah, you do have like these attachments. It's not just the film that you watch when you're growing up, but it's like the place that you saw it. You know? Yes, exactly. You remember certain films. You remember where you saw it. <laughs> the whole experience is kind of you know embedded in your. In your memory, and then you, when you oh. see that venue, you you think about like, oh, you know, I remember. But it's funny, that. even for us, or like as kids growing up who like movies, even those cinemas that I've never been to, I have a kind of, oh, that's sad. I've never been there, but I yeah. know of it, and yeah. I know, like, we know of cinemas that are in Los Angeles because of the Oscars, or we know man's Chinese theatre from premieres and yeah. with, so like even things like places like that are quite i don't have any personal memories of them i've never been but we still associate them with the movies and so they have a, yeah. a romanticism to them exactly and you picture all those sort of old photographs i used quite a few in the film of people lined up in front of the old cinerama dome or the old you know man's chinese theater which i think was grumman's at the time you know uh, anyway so yeah that's that I was just going to say that it was interesting, your music choices that you had Radiohead and you had Fleet Foxes, and we're talking about soundscapes, and it feels that that's the music you're into, into is also quite cinematic. So you have this sort of very cinematic perspective or, or a filter, it seems, of how you receive things. And we also asked you to come up with some of your favourite movies to talk about and what... What were some That's of those? Oh, question. Um, well, I love. Um, well, I love. What sprang to mind was the Royal Tenenbaums, which I absolutely love. Um, the Big Lebowski, 
which I absolutely love. Um, then uh, Harold and Maude, which is, yeah, I don't know if you guys know it. Uh, yeah. We've, yeah. Well, we've literally just been talking, well, we were talking, we weren't necessarily talking about Harold and Maude before you came on, but we were talking about uh, being there. And within the last two weeks, I've seen the last detail, but I've grown up. I mean, it's crazy. Uh, within the last two weeks, I've seen The Big Lebowski. Um, within the last six months, I've seen Royal Tenenbaums, which is in my top five films of all time. And then I've been watching all of Hal Ashby's, or some of Hal Ashby's other films. So we've got the same taste in films, basically. So I was so excited uh, to have you on. I watched, um, I watched The Big Lebowski about a week ago. Did you? That's so yeah. So good. It it just does not. It it never like lessens. It's as great every time. I mean, there's like a few times where I'm like, yes, like this is so great. This movie, you know. So yeah. Anyway, I love the Big Lebowski. But I, I think I watched it about four times before I actually followed the plot. It wasn't oh. even that. I wasn't that bothered by it. And it was oh, only yeah. it's only on about the fourth occasion you go, oh, it all ties up. I'd never exactly. even I'd never even thought to follow the plot. Or think of it like a, a mystery. Right. It just was no, like involved with the characters. The characters are so good. John Goodman is so good. I mean, he's like, I mean, and of course, Jeff Bridges is so good, but he's sort of like, you know. The straight man. Yeah, exactly. And he's, yeah. And and then there's, I mean, Steve Buscemi, John Turturro. So, I mean, it's so good. <laughs> it's yeah. Julian Moore. It's so good. It's a very, um, right, say, uh, ah, so much to talk about. Um, but it's one <laughs> of those things that, that like, um, like, you watch it and then you watch, like, it rewards you with repeat viewings. Um, I remember... Exactly. I remember me and my me and my best friend from uni would um, we'd stop talking to each other, but we grew up watching it on VHS and then DVD, and then. Um, but me and my friend weren't talking to each other, and then we went to a screening of The Big Lebowski, and we'd grown up together watching it on like tiny little screens, not even big flat screens, and. Um, I just remember we were both in the cinema and there's the bit when the landlord is uh, doing his dance presentation and, but like we weren't talking to each other but we were sat next to each other at the cinema and as soon as he comes out we both point at the screen and we both shout out crash mat because there's a blue crash mat that he uses to do a forward roll on that we'd neither of us had ever noticed before on a small screen and it's like there's just these bits where every time you watch it the film gets better you know all of the characters are richer like uh, the the plot makes more sense um yeah it's an incredible film it's a good one yeah at the end of it, I always wish that there was about eight films with those characters solving a mystery. You just want to go like, I wish there was just another one, or you could just kind of yeah. keep it going. That's the thing. I mean, that's exactly right, what you were saying about not really following the plot, because I didn't follow the plot, I don't think, initially really either, you know, because you're just so intrigued by the characters, and they're so funny, and the performances are so are so great. But, uh, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's but would you say that the Big Lebowski, because you've lived there, would you say that the Big Lebowski was sort of like a particularly like, um, an, like an LA movie? Yes. Yeah. Totally. Because like the grocery store he's in, that's totally our grocery store. I think he's in a Ralph's. I can't remember if he's in a Ralph's or a Vaughn's or whatever. But you know, and and just like the things you know, the thing with LA is the light in LA and I don't know what it is, but the, the light in LA is very particular to LA, which is why 
when you, whenever, I, I can always tell when they shoot a show, like a sitcom, whatever, and they fake New York and they call it LA, like whether it was Seinfeld or Friends or, you know, I can always see it because the light is really different. Yeah, and like when they film in, like when they film in Toronto and they say, it's uh, it, it's New York. It's New York, and you can, and you can tell because it feels like oh no, this is Canada, right? Yeah, exactly. And I think that LA in particular, and I don't know what it is, but in I don't know if it's like the smog layer or what, but in particular, the light of LA is this very like. I don't even know how to describe it, but I can always, so, so the big Lebowski had that LA lighting, you know, look exterior lighting. And then like the things like the, the grocery store and the, and the architecture from, from Jeffrey Lebowski's big giant house, you know, which you see, um, to like, you know, the dude's apartment, you know, and how the, in those little like bungalows, those little kind of, you know, so yeah, it's very LA, and all the you know kind of accents, the bowling alley, <laughs> yeah, it's very LA. Uh, so, I went to high school actually, right near the bowling alley that they shot in. So that in particular, like when they're in the parking lot, I've had many a Friday, know, Saturday night in the parking lot there. You know it. I, I mean, do. I always get very excited. I always get very excited when I see films set in London, and I can kind of like, oh, I've been there, and I know that bit, and yeah. yeah but exactly. if if the Big Lebowski, if the Big Lebowski's uh, Los Angeles, then Royal Tenenbaums, even though it's kind of like in a fictionalized New York, is like a very New York movie. Totally, totally, it's totally New York. The why? Because I lived in New York too, and that movie feels very New York, although it's more like Brooklyn rather than Manhattan, but like. You know, everybody has a Y near them, you know, like the 92nd Street Y is where they they film and the the public transportation and the look of the streets there, you know, it's the, the lighting there. And yeah, that movie is so great. And I don't know if you've ever watched the special features, but the special features for it are incredible because they show like Wes Anderson's brother, um, I think it was his brother did all the storyboards for it. And like all these sort of like concept, you know, drawings that are exactly what the sets looked like. And so they're mm. little, I mean, it's just so incredible actually. Um, yeah. I've watched that a number of times. You know? I think, it, I think, I, I think, it, I think it's a beautiful film and I feel like it's, like when you see Bottle Rocket and then Rushmore and then Royal Tenenbaums, it's sort of like, um, it's sort of like you can see what he was heading towards. And then, um, and they were all with Owen Wilson as well. And then when he did Life Aquatic, which Owen Wilson didn't write, it's kind of like you go, ah, oh, this is, I don't, I don't love Life Aquatic as much as I love, um, Royal Tenenbaums, and it's kind of like he hit like a breaking point where everything kind of came together with Royal Tenenbaums, where you just go, you know, you look at all of his films and you go, this is peak Wes Anderson, you know? I, I would totally agree. And I would actually, I mean, that's a good point that you make. And I would say that I wonder, 
and I've only just thought of this now, and this may be a controversial thing because people love him, but I'm not the biggest fan of Noah Baumbach. I hate to say it. I want to love his movies, like when they're sort of trailed and like the copy on them, I'm always like, oh, I want to see this. I can't wait to see this. And I'm always left sort of just a little unsatisfied, you know, or whatever. And I think that Noah Baumbach wrote some of those later movies with oh. us. Well, he, yeah, so uh, he he partnered up with Wes Anderson on uh, Life Aquatic. That was like the, that was like the turning point. I think that with Royal Tenenbaums, it is out of out of those three, Bottle Rocket, uh, Rushmore, and that that is the one that hits me the most emotionally. Mm-hmm. Um, and anything. Well, you've made just made a film about it, but anything to do with dads that? just absolutely hits me right in the heart, and uh, and I cr- I cry every single time at Royal Tenenbaums, and I don't I, and Wes Anderson's sort of like known as being kind of like um, a little bit emotionally distant and more technical, yeah. and he just absolutely nails it with Tenenbaums. I think it's incredible. Mm-hmm. So good. Oh my gosh, it's so good. It's giving me chills. That end when they walk out of the cemetery. So good. Ah, oh, the whole thing. And and I got like that. It really resonated with me that movie because of the father issue and the difficulty in that relationship between Ben Stiller and and his dad. And you know. Anyway. Ah, oh, it's good. <laughs> I didn't I never thought about the tie-in here, but yes, it was good. So your dad is uh, uh, Alan Ladd Jr. and you've made this uh, movie about him and the way the sort of like um, the documentary starts is kind of like by sort of framing it as like Alan Ladd Jr. is like the most famous uh, Hollywood producer that you've never heard of. And it's sort of like um, he's sort of responsible for Star Wars and... (laughs) You're asking all of these Star Wars fans, who's Alan Ladd Jr.? And they're dressed up as minor Star Wars characters. And there's a whole list of them that can't, that, that can't put his name to a face. So um, talk us about a little bit about um, uh, why you made the film and how, and, and how it came about. Well, that was actually one of the reasons. Um, because I found that you know, as I sort of was working in the film industry myself and, and um, you know, meeting people, there were a lot of people, more of my generation rather than his generation. His generation, people knew who he was, obviously. But people that were sort of in my age group, didn't a lot of them didn't know who he was. Yet they would tell you their favorite movies were, you know, Star Wars, Blade Runner, Alien, you know, like all these movies that he had been involved with. I mean, I would often say to people, like, you know, if it got brought up and I would say his name or something they didn't know, and I'd say, well, like, do you know the tree? And I would go, do, do, do. Because <laughs> it was like the digital lad company tree, like, do, do, do. People were like, yeah. oh, yeah, I know the tree. I love the tree, you know? So I would say, well, that's... <laughs> but then a lot of the time, people knew the tree, but didn't know the name of the company. They just knew the tree. Yeah, they, Who yeah. cared about the bottom part, you know, was the tree, and that was enough, you know, enough said. Um, so I would say, like, you know the tree? And then people would say, like, oh, yeah, I love the... Yeah, 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 okay, I know who that is. And then I would say, or, I, I mean, because I don't generally talk too much about it. I generally give people the context that they're looking for and try to move on from there. But then sometimes, like, when people say, oh, like, what has he done? And, I, and I'm like, well, he was president of 20th Century Fox in the 70s. And people are like, 
oh my gosh. And I say, you know, he, he was the guy that greenlit Star Wars, you know, and then, you know, then the tree and, and various uh, other things. So um, anyway, the, but I think getting back to the genesis of this whole discussion is that I, I think because he didn't, he wasn't on the red carpet or trying to get any attention or like next to George Lucas in the interviews or anything. That's never been his style. Like he had it written into his contract at each job that he took that he didn't do press because he was so uncomfortable. And I remember actually one time, the one and only time he did press was he agreed to do an interview for entertainment tonight with Mel Brooks when they were making space balls. And I'm sure because Mel Brooks is a close friend of my dad's, he just, you know, managed to convince him. So, and I remember they straight, they did it at our house. I don't know why. So I happened to be there for it. And I remember when they started up, my dad, as soon as they started up, Maybe I, anyway, but my dad took his coffee cup and they put like a, cause at first they like dropped this boom right in front. And he was like, uh, uh, no way I can't. Like he was, he's very, very shy. So he was like, I can't, no way. There's no way I'm doing this. So then they said, okay, well, how about if we just kind of like, just put this tiny little mic and they put a tiny little mic, like on his tea saucer. And so as soon as the, um, interview started, he took his saucer and turned it upside down over the mic. I mean, there was no liquid in it, but uh, yeah. And so it was like this really terrible audio feed and it was, you know, back pre-digital days. But um, he, he, he says after the fact that he knew that they wouldn't be able to use much of it. Right. <laughs> That's yeah, really interesting. That, that Mel spoke because Mel would be very articulate and, you know, would speak clearly and there would be no issues with him. But my dad... Uh, Felt like if he if he did that, then they would not use his his stuff as much. It's interesting so. as well that his dad was an actor and a performer and a movie star. To have someone who's who sort of shies away from the limelight, and it's also interesting that when I was watching the film, and I think I think God, I really get invested in films like this and the kind of era of it. And a really interesting companion piece, I guess, is the the Robert Evans film, uh-huh. which you think, we're, we're, but he's the opposite. He's a showman. Exactly. So he's going out there and saying, I'm Robert Evans. And I did, exactly. And it's, it's, he's like, he's almost acting like a star producer. Completely. Whereas your dad is the opposite. He's in the background, but he's probably having just as many successes or probably more so. And it's, and it's really interesting because that time now, it's such a, it feels like such a creative time in Hollywood. And your dad's often kind of very um, respectful and he's very much about creative people. So his job is to say yes to creative people. Exactly. And that's how he sees it. So that's why, I mean, yes, he, he's shy. Um, so definitely that was a major component. But he, he also is genuinely of the belief that it's not his spotlight to take. He didn't do it. I mean, he'll be the first person to say, like, I didn't make the movie. You know, I just like the idea. And I gave them the funds to do it. I gave them the okay, the green light, you know. But he's not there, you know, which Bob Evans is like, it should have been, you know, Bob Evans, Chinatown, not Roman. Oh, come on. You know, I mean, how does Roman Polanski feel about that? You know, but that was that's the opposite of my dad. My dad is the one who, you know, who says just like, no, I, he'll always say, I just thought he was really talented or she was really talented or I just liked the idea, you know, and I thought it was a movie I'd like to see, you know, never 
you know, I'm just amazing and I have this magic touch and I just know, you know. Um, so but it's sort yeah. of, he had sort of a, a less is more sort of approach to how he dealt with. I really like the, uh, there's the Mel Gibson interview where Mel Gibson says, you know, I'd like to direct it. And just in like the gap, uh, your dad said, uh, I have no problem with that. And then the <laughs> the conversation continued. But that's like the decision that is, yeah, right, Mel Gibson is now going to you know, begin his uh, career as a director, like an Oscar-winning director. And it's kind of like uh, he, he, um, uh, he sort of, re- he was responsible for that. Um, but he didn't sort of like showboat it, you know? No. No, that's his thing. And being like somebody who's made a film or thing, you know, having someone's support is so rare, you know, and having the support of somebody that can actually help you, like, you know, is also even more rare, especially when it's help you financially or, you know, kind of invest in your, in your thing. And so that was something I really came to understand, I think, a, because of where I am in my life. Um, but, you know, talking to these filmmakers that I admire so much and hearing them talk about that, like, he gave them that chance, you know, and knowing so well how rare those chances are, you know. I mean, there, you know, there are a lot of talented filmmakers, a lot, who will never get a chance to to live that life, to make those movies that they dream of or, you know, and, um, or, you know, never will get the sort of, you know, support that he offered, you know, uh, in shepherding their films, which was another thing he did. Not only did he give people the green light and the opportunity to, to make movies, but then he protected them. And, you know, oftentimes the studio head is, is the studio, you know, but in many ways, my dad was the shield between the filmmaker and the studio, like corporate money, you know, bottom line crunching. We don't care about art people. You know, my dad was the guy, the person in between, you know, saying, finish your movie quick, 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 hurry, go do it while they look away. I'll distract them. You go finish your movie, you know? Yeah. It makes you feel really nostalgic as well. Oh, no. Oh, no, what? it's fine. Here. I, thought <laughs> you both, I, I thought you both froze. No, no, you were no, so no, interested. You were so interested in what I was saying. Yeah, um, but it, make, it makes you feel nostalgic. It's like when he sets up that floor for all of the creators to work in. And you just think, of course, that is, that, like, these are really amazing ideas. Like, we're, me and Nathaniel are both comedians. And, um, and it's kind of like, I always feel like... Um, I, I was at my best surrounded by other comedians where we sort of like see each other's shows and give each other feedback and kind of like, you know, helping each other. At the beginning of the career, that was the exciting part, you know, uh, and then you're all off touring by yourself. But like, so when you see like, that's how Hollywood was sort of set up, that you have like, you know, um, you know Ridley Scott and George Lucas and Mel Brooks and they're kind of like, uh, they're all sort of bumping into each other and uh, inspiring each other. I just thought that, yeah, it makes you, it, yeah, it makes you nostalgic for something that I never even lived through, but it's nostalgic for 
um, a, a, maybe a better way of making making films. I would say yes. I mean, I, I would, to be honest, you know, just collaboration, artistic collaboration and support, you know, really breeds the best thing. You know, you get the best product uh, when people are there supporting one another, feeding off each other, riffing, you know, all of that. I mean, I, I love the collaboration of the documentary. That was my kind of my favorite part, working with I mean, hearing these stories were really incredible too, shooting the interviews, because obviously for me, I mean, it was, you know, they're talking about my dad, you know, I mean, most people would enjoy sitting with, you know, friends of their parents and hearing about their parents as, as, you know, whatever their, you know, occupation is, you know, I think, but the fact that then these people are like talking about movies that I love and strangely didn't kind of appreciate my dad's role in them bizarrely like I sort of was able to compartment which I think is just part of being a kid but compartmentalize these things like George Lucas and Star Wars existed separately from my father but simultaneously intertwined with because I mean I remember when it came out I was four but it was such a big deal my god and my dad put us in the car drove us past the line you know like uh, you know the queue and so Obviously, it's not that I was like, oh, what? He had something to do with that movie? I didn't know. I mean, of course I did, you know, but but sitting across from George Lucas and hearing him in a way like what you talk about, like the nostalgia, hearing him sort of relive that part of his journey, which is so far in the rear view, you know, I mean, I, it, I'm sure there are, he doesn't spend a lot of time so much thinking about about that reminiscing in that time, you know, and then sort of hearing him talk about it and, and me then kind of realizing, um, you know, that my dad's role was significant, you know, and one that, uh, that is rare and one in many ways, you know, that, that champion, of the artist is in some ways the well is often the hardest to find. Oh, here's my daughter now. This is the she's coming in. <laughs> Hi, I'm on a Zoom interview. We can go upstairs. This this is Iola. Iola was the inspiration for the film. Give a wave for for the camera. We, <laughs> we had an appearance from Rigby Taco. Taco. <laughs> Oh, you didn't? Okay, let's chat about it afterwards. Okay. Talk, yeah, yeah, we'll talk about the French test afterwards. <laughs> <laughs> but actually, um, yeah, the, the other interesting thing about the, the movie is that it has this perspective of your perspective on it. So it isn't like a, it's not like an objective documentary. It's you, it's you from your perspective. And it's almost that when you're growing up, you don't see a lot of your dad because he's so busy. Exactly. And it has this almost meta thing of your learning what he was doing and seeing what he was doing when he wasn't with you. And plus now it's meta because you're making the movie. Yeah. So you're doing exactly. what he was doing. So yeah, it has this, exactly. everything kind of feeds <laughs> back into itself. Totally. And it's so true. And we thought, we thought a lot about that. And so that's like kind of part of the, when people say, what was the inspiration for the film or what did you get out of it? I mean, a lot of it, it was a, you know, cause this is again, where we kind of started the conversation was about wanting to kind of have a record of who he was so that people, cause I, I, again, I felt like people my age who were kind of the, the new crop of people in the film business didn't really know who he was. And I thought, you know, you know, these films, you know, you know, 
like, how do you not know this? So I, I wanted to kind of do it for that. But in addition to that, I felt that it would sort of be a way for me to, to, you know, fig- to find out what he was doing. You know, again, I, I knew what he was doing in the abstract, but, you know, to actually find out, um, was, uh, was, was a new, a whole new, um, layer of it. And again, being the age that I was, you know, you sort of, these things kind of exist in your like fabric of your life, you know, your psyche in these different compartments, you know, mm-hmm. like for me, a lot, a lot of his career was painful because he, I didn't see him and I was always second fiddle to his job always, you know, I mean, I'd love to say he never missed a a game. He missed every game. You know, I'd love to say like, he was there in the front row. He was never there. You know, he would call (laughs) afterwards, long distance usually. But um, so, so for me, you know, his career was a, a, a prickly subject. And so then for me to kind of to embark on this, this journey at a point in my life where I could understand I'd, I'd been a working adult long enough that I understood how workplaces are and bosses and bad bosses and good bosses and people that support you. And I, you know, sort of had sort of been around long enough to kind of understand more about life in general. I had become a parent myself. Um, so I, I came at this, project with a whole different, um, this is so corny, but like emotional toolbox than I, than I had when I lived this life, you know? And so in many ways it was like, I could have saved a lot of money on therapy if I had just made this movie. (laughs) But it's interesting that you say that, but all these movies, as we're talking, we're probably similar ages is that we also grew up with those movies. So these movies were also happening at that time. You know, I remember when all these movies came out. But, but, yeah. also, but also, and, and you, can't un- you can't understate it, it's that George Lucas tried to get Star Wars made for years and then get a green light to make the film. It's like, he saw the poten- your dad, he saw the potential in this film. He greenlit this film. This film got made. Every single film, regardless of how big or small it was, was influenced in some way by Star Wars after that, after that moment. Like, he changed the face of, of cinema, you know, just by greenlighting this film that was struggling to get off the ground. I mean, it's crazy when you think about the impact, <laughs> the positive impact that your dad had on films, you know? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's true. That's the thing, and that's why I felt even more like he, he deserved... A documentary <laughs> because oh. I just thought you know it, it was worth putting on record what he had done because there's things that people take it take for granted you know um and they think oh it's always been this way but mm-hmm. it it wasn't always that way not necessarily and now in some ways it's swung back in another not so great direction but hopefully you know it seems to be in my study of film especially in this um making of this movie, but there seems, I mean, who knows now with streaming changed everything, Netflix, et cetera, but like, there seems to be this kind of handing back like decade, almost, almost decade to decade in a way, you know, handing back, like right now I would say this, the studios could control, 
the, the artist. Mm-hmm. I, I mean, I, I would. I think that's why a lot of movies are kind of crappy, you know, because they're like, well, let's see. Let's cast so-and-so because he plays well in Asia. And let's cast so-and-so because she's, you know, a big hit in, you know, Europe. And this person gross this much, you know. And, oh, so what? They've never been in a movie like this. But that's fine because they're, you know, they made whatever, you know. And it's just this kind of, you know, patchwork of things that are, you know. Yeah. Not necessarily. And how many how many people follow how many people follow them on Instagram and Twitter and all of this stuff? Kind of like, exactly. It feels... Exactly. But you um, think that's a pendulum situation? Because what? Oh, no, I was just going to say, but it's sort th- of crazy. Because... Oh god! <laughs> no, I was just saying, do you think there'll be a time when creatives are coming back? Is that what you were about to say? I do. I do. I, th- I think it's a little bit of both right now. I do think right now it is, there is an opportunity for it because of digital filmmaking, because people can make a movie. Like I could never have made this documentary because I made this documentary on my own and funded it like through a crowdsourcing Kickstarter campaign. And, you know, so I didn't have any like real backing. I never, I could never have done that, you know, 15 years earlier, you know, pre digital cameras and, you know, editing in your house and, and things like that. Um, so I think that the opportunities and especially with, you know, whatever graphic software, all kinds of things, there's opportunities now, I think for people to, um, to create things that with, with no money, but it's still, it, it doesn't matter at the same time you can create it, but then there's the next step of like, how do you get that out there? You know, because that's, yeah. Well, that's the that's the thing. I mean, it's kind of like everyone's got the uh, ability to make stuff now, you know, even just on your phone. But how do you get anyone to see it? And that's kind of like the next step of the struggle. But you mean you made this film, um, you self-financed it, and you made it with like very little money. But then you still um, had access to, you know, Ridley Scott. Uh, Mel Brooks, uh, George Lucas, you know, uh, Mel Gibson. So how did how did that all come about? Were they all sort of like, um, you know, surely they were like falling over for each other to sort of talk about your dad? Um, well, fun- <laughs> a couple of things. Number one is that I had I, one of the producers on the film is a woman named Natasha Klebanski, and she used to work. Um, when we like the first year or so that we started on the film, she was still working there, but not hasn't for a long time, but she used to work for the lad company for my dad. And so she had a Natasha at the lad company email address. And so when she actually, when she left the job, I went to my dad and asked her to him to please keep it valid because what we would do is we would email these people from her email address and they would see at the, at the lad company as the, you know, the, place that it was coming from and be more likely not to just trash it. And so then, you know, I was kind of amazed actually at like, you know, again, I think if they had come from my email address, it probably wouldn't have gotten past because it's not like I was sending it to them directly, you know, like I was sending it to their Mm -hmm. assistants or whatever. And, and these assistants are all well-trained and in, how to filter things out, like not even waste the person's time by saying, Hey, so-and-so do you want to get, you know, like, so we thought, well, that, that would be a better way to, to get past that hurdle, you know? And so then you kind of got to not end up in the bin and then, you know, then is like the next step. So, you know, then it would, 
we re- really were pretty lucky that everybody said yes. I mean, the thing that we also did was we asked George Lucas first and he said yes. And then we use the fact that he said yes in every single email yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> sent out after that. But he legitimized the, the project by saying yes. And I'm truly, truly grateful, you know, to him for, I mean, taking time out of his schedule to give us an interview. He was really supportive. Like he, you know, he, you know, again, was the first person to say yes, made sure we could get up there, you know, um, when I had things like with, with the Kickstarter campaign, I actually had him sign a couple of box sets, uh, Star Wars box sets that we used then for auctioning, you know? It, it, yeah. So, you yeah. know, it's like people like on the Kickstarter campaign were like, what is she trying to raise money for? Just ask George Lucas to write a check. I mean, like as if that's the way the world works. So he didn't write a check. Surprise, surprise. But... <laughs> What he did do and what the rest of them did, because I think these people are asked to write a check by a million people every day of their lives. So, um, but what he, what he did was he gave his time for the interview. He gave me these box sets that I could use for, you know, this Kickstarter campaign. Um, you know, he gave me his blessing to use the footage, you know, all of these, these things. And, Again, because he signed on um, early, I was able to sort of, you know, seem a little more legitimate when I approached everybody else. Um, but I really have to say there was not, there wasn't much convincing. You know, everybody was, I was really kind of, I mean, it's, it says nothing about me. It's 100% testament to my dad, you know, but um, I was really humbled by how many people said, absolutely. Yes, no problem. Of course I'll do that. You know, and then made sure, you know, that they, that they were available sometimes like two years later, <laughs> they have busy schedules, you know, but if they're like on, a, you know, like Ridley Scott, like he agreed, but when we ended up getting him was a while later, cause he was shooting Prometheus, you know? So it was like, mm-hmm. just had to wait, you know? So, so when did, uh, okay, right. So when did you start making it? And as you, in the process of you making it, obviously you didn't just sort of like spend a weekend, put it together, and then all of a sudden you've learned about your dad. So in the process of you making it, are you in conversation with your dad and kind of like going, oh, I didn't know this about you, you know? Or how did it work? Yes. So it was a little bit of both because I was... I was very careful with what I shared with him because I didn't want him to, if somebody declined to be interviewed, which really didn't actually happen. So I was glad about that, but I just didn't want him to take anything personally feel, you know, so I sort of wanted to keep him kind of out of it um, as much as possible. And also, cause it would just, I didn't want to, you know, feel judged and whatever, you know, like whatever, you know, you keep your parents. So I, I kept him out of it, mostly the sort of mechanics of it. But when I would shoot an interview, almost inevitably, I would call him afterwards and say, oh, you know, this person just told me this story and that's so cool. Like, I can't believe it. I didn't know that. Like, that's, you know, really amazing. And, um, you know, sometimes I would do it 
because I wanted to hear more, you know, from, from him, like, well, what was your side and what did you think? Um, and then a lot of times I did it just because it gave us something to talk about, which, you know, for, for much of my life, we didn't have much to talk about, you know? So I, I had a reason to call him and, and he, you know, I mean, he's 83. Um, you know, his, his world is much smaller now than it is as is everybody's during the pandemic, but even before the pandemic, you know, he's not making films anymore. It's not the same as it, as it was. So, um, it, it was, it's a real joy for him to, to talk about it and to kind of relive those things. Um, and so, yeah, so I would, I would do that. Um, and it was, it was great, actually. Um, when I first started the film, he was still making movie. He was still kind of working. But by the time I finished it, it took me a while. Um, he had, well, when I first started, he was kind of semi-retired. By the time I finished, he was fully retired. So um, I think that it was nice for him to hear, you know, these stories being told. I think it must I mean. Be- Go, go on, Nat. No, I think that's yeah. I think it must be nice to do that. I mean, there's a really lovely bit in the film where they're talking. Uh, it's uh, Ron Howard talking about Night Shift. And he says that he just couldn't tell. They were pitching this comedy and they couldn't tell your dad has kind of had this fully kind of stoic and didn't let any emotion show on his face. And, uh, and then they go, and they were talking after. It's like, well, I think he smiled a bit, right? And that was how they, they kind of figure out whether he liked the pitch. And there's a bit at the end when you're talking to your dad. And you get to see that, where he's sort of being quite stoic and not really, and he's kind of got this sort of, it's almost like poker face, like he's not, he's not giving anything away. But you can tell he's very kind of, when you're saying how proud of him you are and things, it's very telling, but he's very moved by it. And it's sort of like, it's interesting you get that perspective earlier on and you go, oh, that's what they're talking about. So you get to see that face. Yeah. You get to see the kind of version of it. Yeah, that's a great, uh, that's one of my favorite moments in the documentary because it's really him, like, sums him up so perfectly that he then just says, I was just doing my job, you know, which is like, it was a little more than that. (laughs) (laughs) You know, but... Um. I thought I uh, we've we've got to we've got to wrap up, but I just wanted to say I just I know everything about films, and uh, this uh, this documentary was about a subject matter that I'm you know interested in, and I learned so much just through watching it, and uh, yeah, I really I really loved it. I thought you did a great job. Yeah, I think um, it's terrific. I loved it. Thank you guys, thank you guys so much. It's been so much fun. So thank you so much for having me. No, well done. Congratulations with it. Um, we've just got time to play our world-famous game, uh, Better or Worse. So, Amanda, I'm going to hand you over to Nathaniel, and he's okay. going to take over. Okay, Amanda, this, this game is called Better or Worse, and I've done it this week with historical figures, and you have to say whether the next person is better or worse than the person before, based entirely on my opinion, to score points. Okay. Beginning with Charles Dickens. But is Andy Warhol better or worse than Charles Dickens? It's my opinion, Ross. Your opinion? Um, better? Worse. I was going to say that. Well, you should start with it. Maybe you, you didn't, Amanda. That was my first, but I thought, you know what? This is, this is a trick question. No, there's no tricks. Okay. 
Okay. You've got to be instinctive. David okay, Bowie. You've got to be yeah. instinctive about this, Amanda. Come okay. on, let's go. Okay. First thought, first thought. David Bowie, better or worse than Andy Warhol? Better. David Bowie, better. better. I, mean, I I was going to say, I might have to hang up the call <laughs> right, right now. Muhammad Ali, better or worse than David Bowie? Mm-hmm. Your opinion. He's a big uh, David Bowie fan. Okay, better. Well, yeah, so David Bowie's better. Bowie. No, 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 reverse. David Bowie, better than Muhammad Ali. Correct. In your opinion. Walt Disney, better or worse than Muhammad Ali? Walt Disney, the company Walt Disney, or Walt Disney, the person? The person and what he did. The man and his work. Better. Walt Disney better or Muhammad Ali better? Walt Disney better. Better, yeah. Uh, Neil Armstrong, better or worse than Walt Disney? (laughs) (laughs) This is really hard, no? No, it's really easy. Neil Armstrong is better, he's better. Walt Disney is better than Neil Armstrong. Uh, John Lennon. Yeah. Is Amanda Frozen? No, 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 I was taking that in. I was taking that in. I was taking that in. Okay. Okay. (laughs) John Lennon, better or worse than Neil Armstrong? Well, John, I mean, better, in my opinion. Yeah. Paul McCartney, better or worse than John Lennon? Worse. Oh, <laughs> Better. Really? Oh, wow, wow. Okay. I agree, but you know. Okay. J.K. JK Rowling. J.K. J.K. Rowling. Better or worse than Paul McCartney? Uh, worse. 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 Alfred Hitchcock. Better or worse than J.K. Rowling? Better. Better. Robin Hood. Better or worse than Alfred Hitchcock? Worse. Worse. Yeah, worse. <laughs> so, you got an eight. You got an Very eight. Good. Okay. Ah! Right. So, Amanda, you got an eight, which means that you are bang average. Uh, it means that you're <laughs> not quite as good as Jen Brister, Thomas Coombs, John Coltrane, Tez Ilias, Zoe Lyons, Jason Manfred, Joe Scadeni with ten, David Bedil, Ken Chain, Mike Drucker, Harry Hill, Dominic Monaghan, Luke Morley with nine. But you are as good as Matthew Crosby, Cece Dent, Charles Eston, Wayne Federman, Henry Fraser, Eddie Hearn, David Hepworth, Jason Isaac, Simon West, John Niven, Magical Bones, Samantha Morton, Matt O'Kine, Miranda Raisin, Griffiths, Jones, Chris Dart, Baroness, Saeed of Arsies, Drew Rippon, Mark J. White, Julian White uh, with eight. Richard Herring, you're better than Richard Herring, James King, Ludy Lynn, Henry Normal, Janet Varney, Johnny Vegas with seven, Gary Delaney, Nan Frizzell, Frank Harper with six, Dave McLean uh, with, poor old Dave McLean with five. Uh, we get to the end of our one year and then we reset it again. So it's a very uh, long okay. Oh, I get it. Eight is a very good score. Solid, um, solid. You should have got more with your guts. I know. You should have I used the force. I should have. I really should have. I mean, that's what I was thinking and then I just second guest, but no. It's all right. It's all right. You're only human. Um, yes. So, congratulations. <laughs> congratulations with your film. Uh, congratulations with your score on Better or Worse. Uh, it's called Laddie, much. the man behind the movies, and it's out Laddie on the 26th of April. Thank you um, so much. Thank you. Th- Thank you for being on our show. Welcome to the clubhouse. All right. Uh, thanks, everyone, for listening. Um, have a great week and uh, look after each other. We're not out of the woods yet, but we're nearly there. Uh, goodbye and talk to you next week. 